0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch.
1: Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Hello, and welcome to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on business and the markets. I'm Patrick Lane deputy digital editor here at The Economist and coming up on today's show what should governments be doing to try to limit the economic harm of the new coronavirus? Chinese business schools are continuing to rise in popularity. Can they compete against big western players like Harvard or Stanford? And New York joins the cities rebelling against the cashless society. The number of cases of the new coronavirus has climbed to over 72,000 in China alone, and fresh cases are being reported all over the world. But now attention is turning to its detrimental economic effects. In Asia, share prices fell as the effect of the outbreak deepened. In Germany, a big exporter to China and to the rest of Asia, investor confidence has also slumped. And several big companies have warned that the virus will hurt their profits, among them Apple and HSBC. As the impact grows, what should governments be doing to try to cushion the blow? Ryan Avent is The Economist's free exchange columnist, and he's been writing about this. Ryan, when economies suffer shocks, like the coronavirus outbreak, governments sometimes try to provide stimulus to offset its effects – What have they been trying or considering this time? So far,
3: the economies that have been most heavily affected by the outbreak have been dipping into a playbook that a lot of governments have been using over the past decade or so since the global financial crisis, which is to roll out stimulus to try to shore up confidence and keep economies functioning. And so you've had interest rate cuts across Asian economies, And then you've also had some governments begin to talk about uh, government spending plans, fiscal stimulus. So Singapore, South Korea, uh, and China, of course, are all developing stimulus plans that are primarily targeted at helping the firms that are most badly affected by the outbreak make it through this period of difficulty. But the aim so far is to try to keep spending from collapsing and and sort of exacerbating the effects of the crisis in that way.
2: When economists try to analyze economic shocks, so they they divide them into demand shocks and supply shocks, don't they? And the two things require different answers. Now, on the face of it, it looks like in China, for example, you've got a, you know, a fall in demand because people aren't going out. They've been told to stay at home, in fact, in a lot of cities. So you can see that that will reduce you know, demand for consumer goods, for consumption spending, for meals, all that sort of thing. You'd expect Stimulus to try and offset that. But at the same time, there's a big supply shock going on, isn't there? Because if people aren't going to work, then the economy is able to produce less, and that requires something slightly different. So are they distinguishing between those two things? The
3: sort of stimulus measures that governments have, have been taking so far are there to try to keep spinning up. Um, the idea is that you don't want available capacity to fall idle so that people are laid off and things of that nature. But the effect of the virus goes well beyond that. And it actually affects economies' capacity to produce goods and services. And so when people can't go out, they can't spend on, you know, restaurant trips and films and haircuts and things of that nature. But the people also can't do their jobs. Factories within China that are crucial parts of global supply chains are not shipping goods now. And so you have inventories around the world that are running low and that's going to contribute to this cascading effect of factories that just aren't able to uh, produce as they had before. And so an important question is, how much uh, good does it do to make sure that spending holds up uh, if there aren't goods and services available to buy in the first place? And so you, you find yourself confronting this whole different set of concerns. And I think governments are only beginning to sort of grapple uh, with those kinds of effects.
2: And I guess that there are different effects in different places as well. I mean, there's obviously a question of scale. This is first and foremost a problem for the Chinese economy. And then there are knock-on effects to other economies, which in themselves might be smaller in absolute terms, but relative to the size of those economies, I suppose if it's Cambodia or Vietnam or whatever, maybe bigger than for China, which is which is huge. So that's one thing. You've got different sizes of effects in different places. And also because what may be felt as a supply shock in China because of a reduction in capacity could be felt elsewhere as a demand shock because If the Chinese economic capacity goes down a bit, then there's no point in a factory having an order for something from somewhere else. So that gets felt as demand down the line. So for a policymaker, depending on where you are it's a really thorny thing to have to worry about.
3: It really is. It starts kind of bending your brain a little bit. Um, and I, I think the effects of this outbreak are difficult for policymakers to gauge because we've never really had to deal with this kind of supply shock affecting these networks of global supply that have grown up over the past uh, two decades. China's bearing the brunt of what's happening now. And I think uh, the sort of first order concern is to make sure that this uh, you know enormous drop in output and income over the, the first quarter doesn't begin to translate into defaults, into mass layoffs, uh, in a way that might create a much bigger economic catastrophe. But the Chinese government has to be careful as it does this, because the virus is sort of affecting the Chinese economy, which it has all these sort of background difficulties that has been trying to resolve, it needs to pursue various reforms, its companies have run up massive debts. And so, you have to be a little bit concerned about bailing people out willy nilly because of the possible moral hazard effects. The other thing to note is that the interests of the Chinese government may not always be aligned with the interests of governments elsewhere. Uh, And so there's sort of a lot of different things in play. And I think we're sort of learning as we go along how these things play out.
2: How much can we learn from past episodes, whether it's outbreaks of disease like SARS or MERS, or whether it's more conventional economic ones like the oil shocks of the 1970s. Is there anything in there that can guide policymakers?
3: Well, we can't draw on those lessons as much as we'd like, certainly. You know, it's interesting to think about the oil shocks of the 1970s and the way that governments responded. It was a period in which, you know, economists learned a lot more than they were able to contribute usefully to the policy debate, I think, and we may be there again. You know, the problem is you've got an outbreak that is in itself very different from Comparable events like SARS, uh, because it's spreading more widely, you have a a macroeconomic backdrop that's very different because interest rates around the world are so very low, because uh, economies are much more integrated. And then you have this dynamic with global supply chains, which have just never existed at this level of complexity and interconnection before. And, and we really don't know how uh, these things are going to respond. The trade war, you might think, would be you know, give us something to go on, but there's a big difference in sort of a rise in tariffs that you know, where companies can choose either to just sort of absorb some of that cost or pass it on to consumers and there's some flexibility. And a situation in which companies simply can't get the, the parts that they need and are forced to no longer operate, and that kind of cascades through the system. It's, it's really unprecedented. So I think as in the 1970s, we're in a position where the field of economics is going to be learning a lot more than it's contributing, and hopefully that'll prepare us better for future disasters.
2: And I suppose that events like this can also be used to disguise or cover up things that might have gone on anyway. For example, if companies are thinking of repatriating investment from China or they're actually having a bad run anyway, this is quite a good excuse to use. There's all that sort of noise going on as well, which just adds to this complexity.
3: I think that's absolutely right, especially given how politically charged discussions about economic uh, interactions with China tend to be. And so, you know, just if you think about the pressure that the American government has been exerting on on Europe to try to reduce its dependence on Huawei and other Chinese firms, this could be an opportunity for the U.S. to try to press its interests uh, along those lines. And then you, you may wind up in a situation where the sort of strategic policymaking the governments are doing is actually counterproductive in terms of riding the economic ship globally as soon as
2: possible. Right. So just when we got the trade war more or less past us, we've got a coronavirus to worry about. It never gets any more simple, does it? Thanks very much, Ryan. Thank you, Patrick. I appreciate it. And you can read Ryan's piece and all our coronavirus coverage in the upcoming edition of The Economist. Try a subscription. Go to economist.com slash offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. If you're looking to get ahead in the world of business, you might well be considering studying for an MBA. Conventionally, students have looked to big Western schools like Harvard or Stanford, but now Chinese business schools are rising up the rankings. Business education in China is booming. Nearly 200,000 people applied to its 200 MBA programs last year, close to twice the number in 2016. But how do classes in the Chinese schools Compared to those in their Western counterparts. Our senior China business correspondent, Stephanie Studer, joined the next generation of hopeful entrepreneurs to find out.
1: So what is strategy? When you hear about the world of strategy, what I attended
4: two MBA classes at the China-Europe International Business School, known as SIEBs. The classes themselves seemed to me very much working on the Western manner. These were both very engaging classes, although on perhaps slightly dry subjects, um, cost allocation and management accounting.
2: It's about doing things,
1: one, efficiently, and then also doing things differently than what the competitors are doing. So it's oh. a relative... Um, Yes, efficient. But
4: uh, the students seemed engaged. There was quite a mix of um, foreign and local students in the classes. In fact, more than a third of students at Siebes are now uh, foreigners.
2: Stephanie, I guess it shouldn't be any surprise to anybody listening to Money Talks that business schools in China are booming. But some of the figures in your report about this growth are really very striking. And there's one, for example, this American Accreditation Body, AACSB International, which recognised 13 Chinese business schools in 2012. And of those, seven were in Hong Kong. Now there are 39, of which 31 are on the mainland. Who are the people who are trying to ride this boom in business education in China?
4: Usually you would expect to find many more MBA students and a relatively small group of older, seasoned executives who are doing the executive MBAs. In China, it's the reverse. So to give an example, um, SEEBS has about 700 executive MBA students, but only about 170 MBA students. And why that's interesting is because many of the students in China who want to do business degrees are those who missed out on a business degree in their youth. So these executives now want to go back and get these degrees. And then, of course, you have a younger generation that may have gone abroad in the past, but is now realising that it would be very useful for them to have not only a business education more tailored to the requirements of business in China, but also to be among some really prestigious and useful networks of students and alumni.
2: There's one important difference between Chinese capitalism and Western capitalism is that Chinese capitalism is simply much younger. So a lot of the companies that they want to know about will be young, will have been founded quite recently, will have been growing very fast. But the other important difference, I guess, is the relationship between companies and the state. Any company, even in the West, has to think about government relations and has to think about regulation and all that sort of thing. But of course, in China, where you've got a The Communist Party rules and the Communist Party says what goes. Those government relations are all the more important. Now, is that at all addressed in business education in China?
4: The Ministry of Education here has in recent years been very much bearing down on universities, at least in higher education, and dictating increasingly what they can and can't do. So for instance, in universities, there has been a demand to reduce the number of imported textbooks, Western textbooks used. That doesn't seem to have been the case at business schools so far. Perhaps an acknowledgement by the Communist Party here that in order to do well and get those global accreditations, they need to hew more closely to Western standards. But there are, for example, some uh, foundational courses on Marxism. I spoke to some deans who told me that the best professors try to use those as a way to tell students how to navigate the waters in China with regards to government officials. But most of the time, when I spoke to students, they said to me, frankly, we're just not that interested in having a course, a sort of, um, you know, bureaucrat 101 in our business degrees, because many of them are older than their Western peers at school, they tend to have already had some real-world experience, and they probably know better than the professors how to make these relationships work. But what they did say to me was that they found the alumni network a very useful place to discuss how to manage those sometimes delicate relationships.
2: Is anything sort of moving in the other direction? You know, you're seeing Chinese business education, Chinese business schools starting to have an influence on Western business schools. Is there something flowing, flowing backwards now?
4: Well, increasingly, what we're seeing are double degrees. So um, a French school, INSEAD, for instance, some years ago, began a double degree with Tsinghua University's School of Economics and Management in Beijing. Um, And, you know, within their worlds, they're both very prestigious schools. And so there's now a sort of knock-on effect happening, I think, in these joint degrees where they can rub off on each other. i don't think yet that Western management schools are sort of looking to China and uh, trying to see what sorts of new models they're coming up with, but certainly China hopes to be a source of those models. Um, one dean at uh, anti-business school in Shanghai told me that uh, he was trying to change the syllabus so that it was less structured by discipline and more by industry. So, for instance, electric cars or online delivery or all these sectors that are booming in, in China at the moment, he found that to be a more relevant way in uh, in some cases of teaching business to students. And he said to me, you know, give us five or maybe 10 years and I think you're going to see what we're doing being implemented in the West too.
2: Stephanie, always a pleasure to talk. Thanks very much.
4: Thanks, Patrick.
2: Cashlessness is catching on. Previously, when you'd pay for the bus or maybe for your morning coffee, you'd hand over coins or banknotes. That's changing as more people choose to pay using their phones, bank cards and smart watches. But around the world, most transactions are still conducted in cash, though the share is falling rapidly, from 89% in 2013 to 77% today. In Norway, at the last count, just 6% of transactions were in cash. Sweden's story is similar. And in China, which has leapt from the pre-banking age to the digital era in one bound, digital payments accounted for more than one-third of all transactions by 2017. In some places, you might find yourself forced to go cashless, no matter how much money you might have burning a hole in your pocket. But some cities are starting to rebel against the trend, and the latest surprising place to say no to the cashless existence is New York City. Alice Fulwood is The Economist's American finance correspondent, based in New York. Alice, just when cashlessness is all the rage everywhere, New York City Council's bringing in this measure to, to limit it. What exactly is it going to do?
1: So they've passed a measure which will force businesses to accept cash in addition to any sort of cashless payment method that customers might want to use, such as sort of credit or debit cards. And the mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, his office says that that will shortly become law. So all businesses in New York will be required to accept cash in addition to any other payment methods.
2: But cashlessness is called on for a reason, hasn't it? It's praised for you know, reducing the time spent at checkouts. It's very secure, people say. So why is the council doing this now?
1: Yeah, so cash in general as a payment method has sort of fallen out of favour, in particular in sort of Europe and parts of Asia, because as you say, it sort of is is slower, it's more inefficient. You know, there have been some studies trotting up the cost of using cash to an economy, and it's about uh, 0.5% of GDP. And that's to do with things like security and theft prevention. In general, it's sort of safer and easier for businesses to operate in sort of a purely digital way. And at the same time, it's easier for the government to sort of, you know, police transactions harder for businesses to commit fraud or evade taxes if you're using cash. Uh, So, you know, it's increasingly in favour in the rest of the world. There is a host of concerns about entirely cashless economies, though. And this is this idea that there are certain groups of the population that don't have access to other payment methods as much as sort of most people do. So these are particularly sort of the poor, the elderly, those who maybe unbanked, um, don't have a bank account that they can use, don't have access to credit cards, you know, have been using cash as their primary means of payment. And if they stop being able to use that at certain businesses, and that pushes you towards sort of cashless equilibrium, then they could be, you know, further excluded from interacting with society and interacting with businesses.
2: And there clearly is a problem in New York, because Something like one in nine New York households doesn't have a bank account. One in five uses uh, alternative banking like uh, check cashing stores and clearly those are going to be – one guesses, You know, the, the, clearly these are going to be poorer people. Now are there other things that the city or cities like it could do apart from a straightforward ban on cashless stores?
1: rather than sort of an outright ban on cashless transactions or sort of forcing businesses to take cash, other countries have recognised that cashless payment solutions have sort of these wider benefits for society and, you know, can reduce the cost of doing transactions as a whole. And so they've tried to sort of take other steps towards, you know, including groups that you wouldn't want left behind. This is things like reducing the sort of capacity of banks to charge for basic checking services. So, you know, eliminating minimum balance requirements or fees for for general checking. Measures like that can increase the availability of checking accounts to groups that you wouldn't want left behind, like the sort of poor or the elderly.
2: One of the curious things about the cashless revolution to me, Alice, is that America seems as if it's actually quite a way behind in this process, compared with Sweden or Norway, or possibly even compared with China. So as somebody who's living there i mean how far do you think it's gone just from you know daily existence and what what you've seen in the in the time that you've been there
1: so you do see you know a few businesses uh, that don't accept cash as a payment um you know the popular salad Chain Sweet Green is one of them um, that I guess will now be sort of forced. So you you are starting to see those signs grow up in a few businesses, and I guess that's why the council's taking this measure. But you know, at the same time as the city seems to be pushing back against cashless payments, it's also enabling some technologies that places like London have had for a while, where you can pay for the metro using your phone rather than having to get a metro card. So there's sort of this this tension between them sort of pushing towards cashless or digital payments for for certain services while not wanting to eliminate cash entirely as we transition to a more digital economy, like you see in in the UK or even in Sweden, uh, where the sort of number of cash transactions has fallen very sharply over the past half decade. New York is behind those places, but it's still pushing towards digital payments.
2: New York's not the only city that's considering or introducing an official ban on cashlessness. I mean, what are the others? And do we think this is likely to catch on in other places?
1: So two other American cities have passed bans against not accepting cash. So Philadelphia and San Francisco both passed sort of similar measures last year. And allegedly Washington's uh, city council is, is pondering the same sort of measure. It does seem as though this is a popular measure um, and it seems to be gaining traction with a lot of American cities. And I guess this is this, you know, that they're trying to sort of square this tension between improving sort of access to digital payments while not excluding certain groups from being able to interact with businesses.
2: So you'll have to keep dollar bills in your wallet for the time being. Thanks, Alice.
1: Thank you very much, Patrick.
2: And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Patrick Lane. In London, this is The Economist. only from
3: rustolium